We're going to pray this morning first. I'm going to pray for one of our council members, Dan Perkins. Um, we're going to pray for a pastor that was with us last week, visiting, just visiting friends here in Greenville, and um, I met him last week, and I let him know that we would pray for him and for his church on Sunday. Uh, we're going to pray for the McCulloughs. Um, Lori's mom is, is in her final hours, and we want to pray for a, um, a gentle passing there. And we're going to pray for our little ones, little, little boys and girls. We're glad you're with us in here today, and we know it's hard to sit still for a long time, but uh, we trust that uh, the Lord's going to help you in these next few minutes. Um, it's very important that your parents are able to pay attention. I got a lot of feedback here, too, so I, you can turn that down some. I'm having a whisper. Um, I think if your kids, if you're thinking mom and dad need to hear this and they need this, then that'll help you. You can draw some pictures and draw some things that you hear in the sermon. And um, I trust the Holy Spirit can speak to you as well. So that's what we're going to pray about in these next few minutes. Let's pray. God, we are thankful for uh, the opportunity to gather corporately. We're thankful that we are able to belt out true things about you and just enjoy them. Golly, what an amazing, what amazing privilege we have and that you've shown us true things about you and you give us the chance to just sing them, proclaim them, savor them, declare them in song. What a great way to start our morning. Lord, this morning I want to lift up a few specifics before we spend our time in the Word. I want to pray for a local, one of our councilmen, for Dan Perkins. I'm thankful for Dan's service to our community. I'm thankful that Dan knows you, professes you, that he's part of a people. God, I want to pray for Dan's service on the city council. I pray that you would guard him from the influences that could impact his decisions in, in ways that wouldn't be wise. Pray that you would guard his heart and guard his mind in Christ Jesus and that you would use him to protect the gospel and to protect the movement and advancement of the kingdom in our context through his service on the city council. I'm thankful for his service to this community in past years. God, also this morning, we want to lift up another pastor in Indiana, a student at Southern, Jake McGee, I want to pray for he and his church that he pastors, New Washington Church. God, I'm thankful for just the kindred spirit, just in a few minutes talking with him, the excitement that he has about the gospel and the, the joy that he has in serving a little church there in Indiana, just across the river from a seminary. I enjoyed hearing about his passion for the far corners, for places that are unreached with the gospel. God, we pray for Jake that he would bloom where he's planted, that he would serve with zeal where you have him, whether it's in this local pastorate, in this little church, or whether it's in the far corners, or whether it's in the seminary classroom, or in a neighborhood where he might live. Lord, we just pray that you would use him, that he's fueled by worship. Thankful for the opportunity to lift him up and lift up his church, your church, New Washington Church this morning. We pray too, Lord, for the McCullough family. We pray for Lori's side of the family. Lord, we just pray for an easy passing for Marcia. Pray that she would be pain-free. Thankful for the fearlessness that she is exhibiting as she's passing this life to the next. 
I pray that that would be a testimony to their family members that aren't walking with you and aren't trusting you and aren't part of a people. God, I pray that you would use death to remind all involved that how brief life is and how important it is that we know our creator. God, we do pray just again for a simple, easy passing that would happen soon. And God, also I want to pray for the little ones this morning. I'm thankful for a room full of little ones. I'm thankful that we have the chance to gather with tomorrow's church. Thankful for the abundance of tomorrow's church that you've given us. Pray that the Holy Spirit would speak to their little hearts this morning that you would use this time. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Turn to Hebrews chapter 11. It's gonna be our starting point this morning. A good illustration is really powerful. When you hear someone make a really good illustration, I hope you enjoy it. This summer, what I'm really enjoying specifically about this summer is it's a summer full of illustrations. We've been in the book of Hebrews these last couple of years and we've been unpacking the argument there, unpacking the point that the Hebrews preacher is trying to make. He's preaching to his people from a distance. For some reason, he's not with them physically, so the book of Hebrews is like a big sermon. And in this sermon, he's making these points and making these arguments, imploring them, don't walk away from the faith. It looks like this church is likely in Rome. And it looks like being a believer in that context, as you would imagine in the Roman Empire in the first century, it would be a dangerous place to believe. Not only are they facing persecution from Rome, they're facing, facing persecution from Jews for being turncoats and turning to Jesus. So here our Hebrews preacher gives us a chapter full, gives them and us through the written word, a chapter full of faith heroes that serve as visual aids for the Hebrews church and visual aids for us. Here's what faith looks like. If the Hebrews church is losing sight of what it means to be faithful, they've got a whole catalog here of faithful folks. And each Sunday, we've been dedicating a Sunday to the next hero. This morning, we're going to be considering Joseph. What I've enjoyed in these people so far and what we're going to see in some of the people to come is real humanity. Here's some of the things that we've observed so far. We've seen fear. We've seen doubt. We've observed deception. We've seen worldliness. We've seen spiritual blindness from misplaced love. We've seen scheming and swindling, trying to manufacture fulfillment of God's promises. We're even later, eventually this summer, going to meet a riddler. We're going to meet a guy that makes or make at least one really hasty, stupid oath. And in a few weeks, we're going to meet a really stiff-necked people right here in this chapter on a heroic faith. What we're finding that I'm really enjoying in this chapter is these people are really human, like you and like me. Yet in their humanity, what we're finding made these folks heroic was not perfect performance. What made these folks heroic was relentless belief in what God said while they fumbled along being really human. They believed God. They went the distance, 
and they died in faith, finishing well. Chapter 11, verse 13 tells us they all died in faith. That's a uniting characteristic of all of these heroes in this chapter. Now, for a bunch of folks that are considering bailing on Jesus, this is, must have been, good medicine. Take a little departure from the sermon for a few moments because I asked myself a question in the preparation of the sermon this week. At this point in the process of preparing, I asked myself the question, do we really need this book? I mean, really, do we need this? Is our church on the bubble? I'm asking that question, that obvious question as a pastor of this church. Are we on the bubble considering bailing on Christianity because it's hard? And in their situation, going back to Judaism, or in our situation, maybe going to something else. Is this church, or is this, is this letter, sermon, beneficial to us at all? And what I began to study over the course of the week was attrition rates in Christianity these last couple of decades. I started with youth. It wasn't too long, well, it's been a few years Past and this is this is fresh for us because we just got our youth back from youth camp. These thoughts, thinking about what these youth have been conditioned to, or how they've been conditioned. They haven't been conditioned in this church to an entertainment-driven youth ministry. Now that's not to say that we don't do some things that are fun. Might be a pool party or uh, something like that, some movie night or something like that. But it's not driven by entertainment. It's driven by message, driven by teaching, and the encouragement all along is this, is this whole thing isn't all about you. You are part of a people. So connection in small groups. And this last, uh, this return of our youth from youth camp reminded me of the beauty of where we've been these last few years. Now, it's hard to compete. If somebody shows up and they're visiting churches and they have a two or three youth sitting next to them who enjoy being entertained, what youth doesn't? And they see a ministry that's not big, a big entertainment ministry, then it's hard to compete with that. And we've lost folks because they said, I, need, I want that. And we said, well, you know, God is calling us to this. So here we're seeing our youth return and we're hearing about the teaching that they participated in. And we're hearing things from them like the teaching and the preaching was really good. They like said, we had some good times. We did some cool things together, but the teaching was really good. And hearing youth say those sorts of things is music to our ears because the attrition rate among youth. Now, this figure has been thrown around. We don't know how sure it is, but the figure has been 9 out of 10 attrit. Now, that's been tidied up some, and that's been brought in. That may be a little bit over the top, but 9 out of 10 youth that participate in an entertainment-type youth ministry, when they get to the point of graduation, then they're just regular people regular church members, and they're like, where's the entertainment? I'm out of here. Now, whether it's 9 out of 10 or 5 out of 10, you would expect the attrition rate would be high going from Frankie's Fun Park to being just a regular old worshiper in a church. What a shock to the system. Now, I did some research this, this week just on regular Christian, just Christ, Christians in general. Those were just thoughts that I've been chewing on, been rolling around about youth. But here's some facts, some figures, Barna's research. The majority of churches in the United States are exhibiting a common pattern. Their base attendance is shrinking. Barna research suggests that the new conversion rate in all American churches across denominations is 1.7 per year 
the new conversion rate is 1.7% per year. The attrition rate, on the other hand, is 2.4% when figures are adjusted for death rate, aging, and general population growth. So think that, figure this. For every 17 new members, we just move the decimal point to kind of make sense of this. We don't have 1.7 new members. We, let's say we have 17 new members, and let's move the, de the decimal point on the attrition rate as well to instead of 2.4 to 24. For every 17 that walk in the door, 24 walk out, according to this new research. For every 17 that walk in, 24 walk out. Here's some other data from BARDA. This is from 2000, a report on the church, excuse me, 2011 report on the church. These are self-identified Christians. Okay, this is different from somebody that we would say is born again. We're talking self-identified Christians, which apparently, at the time of this research, was 8 out of 10 Americans said, sure, I'm Christian. And Christian by birth, you know, not necessarily a practice. Just self-reporting Christians. 80% of people would say that. Now, here's some data and some facts among that 80%. Attendance at church service in any given week has declined among self-identified Christians by 9%. Now, only a minority of these self-reporting Christians actually attend church on a given week, 47%. I think that figure is actually kind of high for our context. Maybe we're post-Christian here in the Bible Belt. Churches everywhere on every corner. But 47%, a minority of people that say they're Christians actually participate in the local church. And that's actually come down. Adults from this segment are currently 8% points less likely to attend Sunday school, which would be a Bible study, in a typical week than was true 20 years ago. Less than one out of five now attend during a typical week. These are people that are saying, yeah, I'm Christian. One out of five participate. Whereas 30% of the self-identified Christians volunteered at a church during a typical week in 1991, that figure has declined to 22% today. Listen to this. Those who embrace the label Christian for themselves, this 4 out of 5, 8 out of 10, however you want to do it, those who embrace the label Christian for themselves are now 10 percentile points more likely to be unchurched than was true in 1991. So these are folks saying, yes, I'm Christian, but they are unchurched more so now than they were in 1991. 31% who fit this profile have not attended any church service during the past six months, excluding special services such as weddings or funerals, yet they say they are Christians. I'm going somewhere with this, so you hang, hang in there with me. This is the one that really hit me. Among the belief measures tested, the followings showed significant changes since 1991. Listen to this. The percentage of self-identified Christians who meet the born-again criteria. These are folks that you would say they've had some sort of experience with God, that their lives have been transformed, or at least they say that. Those who contend they've made a personal commitment to Jesus Christ that's still important in their life today, who also believe they will enter heaven solely because they have confessed their sins and have accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior, jumped by seven percentage points to 48%. Now here's the crazy reality of that. Professing Christians has increased, the percentage of professing Christians 
has increased, yet the church attending Christians has decreased. Let that hit you for a minute. It wasn't too long ago when we were working through Hebrews chapter 11 that I made some comments about some, someone that a lot of us know, Bart Millard. He used to be a member of our church. And expressed concerns not about Bart as a person, not about Bart as a husband or father, but great concern about Bart and his message. And the reason being is because Bart's message, I fear, fueled this number of people that would identify themselves with Jesus yet not with his people. I expressed concern then, as I would continue to express now, that Bart's message had moved to a place where it's saying, man, you can have Jesus, but you don't need those people. Now, Bart would never say that. It was implied, I feared. This is not a new problem. In 2011, we wrote, we, I say, the pastors of Crosspoint, the elders of Crosspoint, wrote a letter to the Hunt Baptist Association. I realized a few weeks ago, a few months ago, when I mentioned Bart's name, the room, probably the people in the room just, <gasps> as you probably did this morning, some of you, <gasps> I know him. And I said then, and I will say now, I'm no respecter of persons. I don't ever want to be. I care about people. But what is more important than any person is the message. That's what prompted this letter in 2011 to the whole Hunt Baptist Association. We didn't make any friends with this letter. Let me just let you know that. But here's an excerpt from this letter. Referring to Ken Freeman's visit in Greenville as an evangelist. Some of you have heard of Ken Freeman. Some of you may remember when he was here in 2011, 2010, 2011. In the few weeks since his time, we have become more and more burdened that our efforts to make disciples don't line up with a myopic focus on decision making. Our burden as a church to make disciples doesn't seem to reconcile with a head counting, myopic focus on just getting some decisions. Our concern is that the stats you so zealously enjoy and laud only serve to feed the monster of a community full of people who think they're square with God yet have no use for his word or his people. We were just as burdened about that in 2011. We didn't make any of y'all mad because y'all don't know Ken Freeman. You see, it gets hard and cloudy when the people that you know involved. But we address this with our community at least our community of Hunt Baptist folks. I'll continue. We felt it especially repugnant that the perceived yield of Ken's short visit was compared with the number of baptisms recorded by the churches of HBA. For the past few years, we've just tolerated this sort of head counting and gun notching, considered it benign. But now we see it clearly as counter to our pursuit of making true disciples in an over-revivaled and hyper-decisioned context. We find that in practice, those we call to discipleship often respond with a spiritual shoulder shrug, saying, why do I need that? I'm already saved. In our context, people that go through the machine of the hired gun evangelist that's not accountable to any church and not directing these new converts to a local church is that these figures that I just shared with you continue to increase. The number of professing Christians continue, might continue to increase. The number of church attending Christians decreases though. And in fact, Ken Freeman in one of his sermons did just as much. I can't remember what the comment was, but it was a despairing, disparaging comment about local churches. An evangelist pointing people toward the greatness of Jesus, yet distancing them from the people that they would be raised up with. 
Man, the funny thing in our context is people just feel like this is, man, this is just unsavory. This isn't cool. We're supposed to be nice to each other. You need to go back and read the Gospels. Jesus wasn't nice. Paul wasn't even close to nice. John the Baptist? Is anybody going to say John the B was nice? We're not being ugly when we engage these sorts of things. We are being true. So I'm asking this question about this book. Do we really need this book, the book of Hebrews, that's calling people to true faith in a context where it's becoming easy to unload it? I'm thinking, yeah, more so than ever. More so than ever. We could look at this book and say, well, our church isn't on the bubble. But in reality, in 11 years, I've seen people go out the back door. The front door's been smaller than the back door. But I think our church may be unique in that respect. If across the board, 17 come in and 24 leave, the back door is bigger than the front for most churches. Man, we may not feel this urgent, but we should. I'll send this letter out to you all this week where you can read it in total from 2011. And the same concern that drove this drove me to make a comment about a guy that I love or about his message, let me clarify, about his message. I don't want to be part of a machine that feeds that number of people that think they're square with God, yet they have no use for walking with the local people of God. Hebrews Hebrews 10 brought that into focus. Let us hold fast, us. Let us draw near, us. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good deeds. Man, that is a church thing. That's what the people of God do together. Man, I am convinced that Satan is doing all he can to to divide the people of God, to sort of individualize faith, and he's duping the world in doing that. There's no such thing as individualized faith. It is done as part of people. I think what he's doing is almost like what happens around St. Patty's Day. Everybody becomes Irish. What happens when the Germans are in the finals at the World Cup? Everybody's, everybody's German now. Man, that's not what it means. We want to be true Irish. And I mean using that symbolically. We want to be true about this thing and not sort of morph into whatever the situation might call for. Here's a few more stats regarding born-again Christians. These are folks that say, yes, I am born again. If you're not urgent about these numbers, then maybe this will sort of bring it into focus. We've just been talking about people that say, yeah, I'm Christian by birth. Now we're talking about people that say, I'm born again. This category is comprised of people whose beliefs characterize them as born again. This segment, which now stands at 40% of all adults in the U.S., experienced significant changes in relation to all six religious behaviors tracked by Barna. The largest shifts in behavior pertain to the 14-point decline in Bible study attendance and the 12-point drop in volunteering at church. Attendance at church services in any given week decreased by 7 percentage points over the last two decades among born-again Christians, falling from 66% to 59%. The unfortunate shift is the increase in the unchurched among born-again adults, which has risen by 5 percentage points to 19%. Do you want to be part of feeding that number by not being zealous about a true message and calling people to true faith and walking with the people of God? Man, that's what fuels my zeal. 
I feel like I did when I was a Marine on the Zodiac boat going into Somalia with a five-paragraph order in my, cardio, in my, my cargo pocket and an M16 with a 203 grenade launcher in my hand, locked and loaded. This is serious. We're not playing games. We're not in a club. We're part of a people that are bearing a message that there is an enemy that's working daily to come against that message. And he's smart. He knows how to work it. Let me divide this thing. Let me individualize faith. And then before long, the whole world will say they're Christian, yet they have no relationship with him or his people. What a great plan. But I'm on to him. Are you? What a great book, this book Hebrews. It's galvanizing faith. That's what this book does. Do we need a book like this? Do we need to consider a book like this as a people? I believe we do. Because it galvanizes faith. Man, I'm thankful that this book is no respecter of persons. It's not out to hurt anybody's feelings. It's not out to make anybody look bad or make anybody feel bad. It's out to proclaim the truth. That's what this Hebrews preacher is doing. And man, I'm thankful that we as a church get a chance to consider it week after week. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 22 is home base for us today, or at least our starting point. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites, and he gave directions concerning his bones. Hopefully you've learned by now, if you've been with us over the course of the summer, you've been on these little faith snapshots, you know that the Hebrews preacher references specific people at specific points. There are lots of points in Joseph's life that he could have gone back to or referred to, but he refers to this point specifically at the end of his life. We can know that the Hebrews preacher isn't wasting anything. So today we're going to consider what Joseph's faith has to say to us. Turn back to Genesis chapter 50. Genesis chapter 50. We met Joseph last week as the 11th son of Jacob and the oldest son of his favorite wife, Rachel. He was favored by his, by his father. If some of you know Joseph's story, I would encourage you to go back and read his story. It covers many chapters, but it's worth reading. What an amazing guy, this Joseph. He's favored by his father, much to his brother's chagrin. So his brothers decided to beat him up and sell him into slavery, ending up eventually with him being a slave in Egypt. He finds himself serving in Potiphar's house. He's accused of going after Potiphar's wife. If you've read the story, you know that, that actually, that's not the way it went down. He goes to prison. He's forgotten in prison for a number of years until God connects Pharaoh's dreams to Joseph's ability to interpret them. Before long, Joseph finds himself a prince in Egypt, serving at the highest levels and in the end becoming Israel's salvation. And I mean Israel as in his dad and the family. Jacob was renamed Israel. Acts 7, 9 through 10 does a nice job of summarizing so far. And I'll just share it with you. If, you want to, if you're quick, you can turn over there. But this came from, from Stephen's last sermon and last words before he was stoned. It's a nice summary. It's a great test too of the content of a real sermon. 
Is the sermon, we're talking about the renegade evangelist again, the Ken Freeman type message. Is the sermon about himself or is the sermon about God's story and what God has been doing? Look at Stephen. What does Stephen preach in his final sermon? He's telling the story. Listen to it. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, that's his brothers, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. It's a nice little summary. And you know it's got to be good stuff for Stephen to have it in his last sermon. I'm thankful the faith hero, though, chapter includes guys like Jacob and Samson and Jephthah because if they were all Joseph's, I might be really discouraged because this guy is a faith stud. A.W. Pink said about Joseph, he said, 13 years in prison did not embitter him. Being made lord over Egypt did not spoil him. And evil examples all around did not corrupt him. Joseph is a faith stud. He's the kind of man that I hope my boys will be. He's the kind of man that I hope your boys will be. He's the kind of man that I want us all to be. Now, in reality, likely, there are very few Josephs out there. Some of you are Josephs to me. I enjoy considering him this morning. So what's the Hebrew preacher up to? Let's ask the question. What is he up to? When he's got many faith examples in the life of Joseph to refer to, he chooses this specific account at the end of his life. Like Jacob's end, he refers to the final hours or final days and specific final request of Joseph. That's where we pick up in Genesis chapter 50, beginning in verse 22. So Joseph Joseph remained in Egypt... He and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Maker, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die. This is our focus passage here. But God will visit you and will bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he's put into a coffin in Egypt. The focus passage, verses 24 and 25, he says, I'm about to die. His final words here, at least recorded, are with his brothers, He says, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and will bring you up out of this land. And oh, by the way, you shall carry up my bones from here. And he made them swear to do so. At the end of his life, he's not sitting with his boys, Ephraim and Manasseh. He's not sitting with Mrs. Joseph. He's sitting with his brothers, the representatives of the people of God. And he's sharing these two things. The exodus that's coming eventually. One, or A, And two, what to do with his bones. Very simple request. The exodus is going to come, and I want you to tend to my bones. Of all the Hebrews preacher could have referenced, this is where he landed. (laughs) Let that hit you for a minute. If you know Joseph's story, you know the guy is a stud. And he lands on, oh, the exodus is coming. And don't forget to do something, what I'm asking specifically with my bones. So we're going to explore these two things. That's the plan for the morning. We're just going to spend a few minutes. It's not a long sermon. 
In fact, I want to prepare you. A lot of the comments that I made earlier were accounting for the fact that the sermon will be shorter, had more room. But, and also, I know that you have these little ones with you. So I'm mindful of all that. So just do the best you can. All right? We're going to look at these two things. We're going to explore them. First, the Exodus. Why is faith at work in his mentioning the Exodus? We've got to ask that question. What's the Hebrews preacher up to? Well, Joseph is referring to what would happen at this point, likely 300 years later. If Joseph lived 110 years, he landed in Egypt when he's about a 17-year-old. So we're saying three to 400 years later, closer to 300 years later, he's referring to these events that would eventually come. The book of Exodus, if you want to know what those events are, where Moses leads the people out of this land where they've landed. He's referring to something that's going to happen 300 years later. And he's referring to their exodus and departure from the land. Now, where in the world would he get that? How would he even know about that? Flip over to Genesis chapter 15. You can keep your finger in 50. I, I can't remember if we come back to it or not, but we'll see. Genesis chapter 15. Look at uh, chapter 15, verse 12. This is Abraham. This is where God is sharing the covenant plan and the promises with Abraham. This is Joseph's great-granddad. Connect the story. We're talking about Joseph's great-granddaddy. Okay, here's what happens. As the sun was going down, in verse 12, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. It's fitting, considering what he's about to share. Then the Lord said to Abram, he said four things. Here's the first of those four things. Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that's not theirs. Know for sure your children will be sojourners, your offspring, in a land that's not theirs. Two, they'll be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. Three, but I will bring judgment on that nation that they serve. And four, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. You can jump down to verse 16. They shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. He takes them back. As Joseph is in his final hours, he's taking them back to something that his great-grandfather said some 200 years earlier, that they would be a stranger in someone else's land. And that's true, right? The first of the four things has happened. There they sit in Egypt, Goshen specifically. There they sit. This promise made to Abram some 200 years earlier, Joseph knows full well the rest of it's going to come true. And that's why he's referring to it. Abraham's descendants, he says, will serve the Egyptians and shall be afflicted for 400 years. Let that hit you for a moment as you think about where Joseph is sitting when he's sharing these words. He's a prince of Egypt. Man, Egypt loves he and his family. He's been a savior of Egypt. He's been the man. Yet he's saying these things are going to come true. It must have been or must have felt unlikely to him if he's made of the same stuff that we're made of because things were going pretty well in Egypt at the moment. The third thing, that God would judge the Egyptians also must have seemed quite unlikely because things were going pretty well with the Egyptians. And fourth, 
In the fourth generation, they'll come out with great possessions and shall come to Canaan again. By faith, though, Joseph recognized the return of the Israelites was sure because God said so. God promised his great-grandfather 200 years ago, and it meant regardless of his experience, whatever his eyes might be telling him, these promises are so sure that my final moments are going to be filled with those details. Man, it's fitting when you think about it. This is a tremendous faith moment. A faith for him, faith meant regardless of what his experience might be telling him, the return, the occupation, and possession of the land was imminent and sure. We're going to consider this more in a moment. I also want you to keep in mind that this is from the guy who spent all but 17 years in Egypt and is dying and living out his last moments still in Egypt. He believes, though, that God will bring his people out with a mighty hand and will restore them to their land. Faith, in this case, case shows us that he keeps his eyes fixed on what God has promised him. Though he's living in the lap of luxury, he's not at home in this foreign land that he spent all but 17 years in, 93 years In his final words, he's speaking about this promised land. Here he is in the lap of luxury with every need met, rich and powerful with all the best that Egypt has to offer. And yet he's pointing to the promises. His final words are pointing to the promises. I I hope you see this as profound. I hope you see the faith involved with this. It reminds me of the Ecclesiastes preacher, Scott's message from Ecclesiastes not too long ago. The Ecclesiastes preacher, maybe Solomon, likely Solomon, having tried everything, having enjoyed all the world has to offer, we could say all the trappings of Egypt, he calls it all meaningless. And he ends his book, his, his, the book of Ecclesiastes with these words. This is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. That's the whole duty of man. Man, this guy's in the lap of luxury, and he's looking for the promises. More on this later. Let's consider his bones. His bones were a treat for me. I'm just going just gonna to tell you right now, I treasure this next little thing we're going to consider about his bones because I've never seen it before. His bones. Why is faith at work in giving instructions concerning his bones? Well, Jacob asked to be restored and actually buried in his own home or in his own land in Canaan. And Joseph is asking for the same thing when the people are called out of the promised land. Joseph asked, are called out of Egypt back home to the promised land. Joseph asked specifically to be restored to his land, though he had spent all but 17 years in another land. His homeland was the land that God promised him. And in so many words, it's whether living or dead, you take me home. God promised it to me, and I want to land there. So you take my bones with you. I enjoy standing on broad shoulders, and we stand on some cool shoulders here at Crosspoint. We refer to the Puritans a lot. I think they're sturdy shoulders. We refer to the Reformers a lot. Calvin, Luther, these guys, man, they have broad shoulders. And here's a couple of quotes, from first from a Puritan and then from Calvin. Broad shoulders about what he's doing here. Some think this is incentive. 
for the growing family and nation to continue to pine for home. Take my bones with you. And there's a thought, before I share these quotes with you, there's a thought that, that there's something to what he's asking of here because he's not asking for all the Israelite bones to be taken back to, you know, 400 years worth of Israelite bones to be taken home, taken home to Canaan. That'd be a mess. He's asking specifically, take my bones. Is he being selfish here or is he up to something else? These broad shoulders that we stand on think he's up to this. Here's what Owen says. He did it, take my bones with you when you go, to encourage the faith and expectation of his brothers and their descendants concerning their future deliverance from Egypt. He did it to encourage the faith and expectation of his brothers and their descendants concerning their future deliverance from Egypt. Put me in a box, display that box, and live out the next 400 years or 300 years at this point, looking at that box, remembering you're not home. Don't get too comfy in Egypt. Let my bones be a reminder. That's what Owen says. Here's what Calvin says. He wanted to sharpen the desire of his people so that they would look more earnestly for their redemption and that they might hope with certainty that they would at length be liberated. Both of these guys point to the thought that his bones are incentive. Man, that's beautiful. What a good God to give them some incentive that, and a reminder, you're not home. Man, I camped out on this this week because I'm thinking, I'm asking the question, does he have incentive for us? There's no caskets in here that I know of. Did he might bring a casket full of bones with him this morning. Any of you have that at home? I hope not. I'm asking a question, you know. God seems to be working the, the same. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So does he have an incentive for us? And I'm looking at man. They had no word of God. They didn't have a single recorded word that we know of. It was all spoken at this point. Moses hadn't started writing the Pentateuch, the first five books of, the, of our Bible, till 300 years later. They had nothing else but a box of bones. God is still pretty gracious in giving them something to remind them, you're not home. But I'm asking the question, what do we have? I know he's given us something, and I know it's going to be really good. So what do we have? And I realize, man, it's got to be the word of God. It's got to be the word of God. We don't need a box of bones. We have the word of God that tells us the whole story, tells us the rest of the story. And then I'm thinking, man, I wonder if this is what the Hebrews preacher is up to when he shares these words in Hebrews chapter 4. Listen to him. Listen very closely to these words in chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. He's speaking to his church. Let us therefore strive to enter the promised land, enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort, of, same sort of disobedience. He could have been speaking 1,500 years earlier during the actual exodus. Let's not lose sight of where we're going as you carry around those bones. He could have at this point referred to a big box of bones if the Hebrews church had had a big box of bones. But instead, what does he say? He says this, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We have something that's better than a box of bones. We have something that penetrates to bone, to marrow. A great incentive to remind us, just like them, that we're not home. 
we're not home. Pine for home. That we should pine for our deliverance. Man, I enjoyed that connection to his word. Interesting that he mentions that they, the Hebrews church, and that we have something that is bone penetrating. While the people of God back then, all they had was bone. We have his recorded and inspired word. We have his promises. And we have, as Paul Harvey used to say, the rest of the story. (laughs) What great incentive. We have promises proven or and or. I admit I'm imagining what life must have been like for that 40 years during the Exodus and the wilderness experience, toting around a box of bones that it might have been cumbersome at times. And then I think about how cumbersome a long, lengthy, weighty, beefy sermon might be on a given morning and realizing that at times the incentives can be cumbersome and heavy, but we carry them around nonetheless because they remind us we're not home. Well, you're going to be glad to hear, I hope you're going to be glad to hear, that his brothers and their descendants, really, we should say, to clarify, did what he asked of them. Listen to this account in Exodus chapter 13. I just love the follow-through. You can turn there if you'd like. Exodus chapter 13, beginning in verse 17. I've never read it. I mean, I've read it, but I've never really read it. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. (laughs) I studied the Exodus so many times. I preached on the Exodus so many times that I just read right over it. He did what Joseph asked him to do, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. Man, I enjoyed that there they go, carrying the bones. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. I love seeing the nation of Israel moving with a big old cumbersome box. Incentive and reminder, you're not home. And then I enjoy the follow-through at the end of the book of Joshua. It's just beautiful. It simply says in verse 32, As for the bones of Joseph, this is at the end of the conquest, the pseudo-conquest, if you've really read the story. As for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt... They buried them at Shechem in the piece of land that Jacob bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money. I love the follow-through. They carried that joker all over the wilderness for 40 years. I don't know why there aren't any mentions in the book of Numbers about somebody tripping with Joseph's bones or you know, some funny story or some special Levites. Okay, you're in charge of Joseph's bones. You're like, oh, man, I hate this job. But here we mount up, it's time to move out, grab the bug, don't forget Joseph's bones. I've never envisioned it, I've never seen it before, but there they are, toting him all over the wilderness. And I'm thankful that week by week, 
we have so much more than a box of bones. Man, that's all they had, and God was gracious to give that to them, but what has he given us? Joseph, in summary, he refused, even in the face of death, to believe that God would not follow through with his promises, that all the families of the earth would be blessed through them, through his offspring, that the offspring would be as numerous as the sand and the stars, and that they would eventually possess the land. What's really cool to me is connecting the reality and knowing that someday when Christ returns, somewhere in the West Bank, we don't know where Shechem is anymore, but somewhere in the West Bank, Joseph and the other dead in Christ will rise. Man, that just excites me to think about that. Joseph will rise. Man, the Hebrew church needed to be reminded of this death-defying faith. They needed it. It's what he's calling for in them. I have three brief applications. They are brief. The first, turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter 3. The first is faith considers the fulfillment of God's promises as more valued than all the world has to offer. Faith considers the fulfillment of God's promises as more valued than all the world has to offer. Joseph lived in the lap of luxury, yet he pined for home. God's promises were more valuable to him than all the trappings of Egypt. Man, we need to see his faith, as I'm sure the Hebrews preacher hoped his people would see, and that they would be, and we would be reminded that this is not home. This is not home. We should live with a light touch on everything. Listen to 2 Peter chapter 3. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. Following their own sinful desires, they will say, where's the promise of his coming? Peter is speaking specifically to a future return. And he could have had this same message in year 350 to the, the people of God, to the Israelites in Egypt. He could have had the same message. Listen to what he says. They will say, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and that by means of the world that they existed was deluged with water and perished. He uses the example of the flood. How unlikely did the flood seem when the flood was about to happen? Rain? What's rain? How unlikely, potentially, could God's exodus have seemed in year 370 to the scoffers? Where's God in the fulfillment of his promises? 
Yet Peter here is speaking to folks that are in the same context that we are, not Roman Empire context, not the diaspora somewhere out there, but context in terms of what happens next, his return. It's like he's speaking to us. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief like it did on the night of Passover, like it did when it started raining. What is this wet stuff falling from the sky? It will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are just are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord? because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. I hope you see the connection here. I hope you see that if, if you are as sure of the promises as Joseph was sure of those promises, then you're going to be living expectantly. You're going to be living with a really loose grip on your stuff, on your health, on your relationships, on your lives, on everything because you know all of this is temporary and he's going to come back like a thief. And it's sure, just as sure for us as it was for Joseph. It's coming. It's sure. A.W. Pink had some good questions that I'll share with you. Is your soul truly yielded to God? If you believe this is coming, eventually... Is your soul truly yielded to God? Do you hold this world with a light hand? Are God's promises your daily food? Life, he says, is held by a very uncertain tenure. Unless the Lord returns first, death will be the last great enemy with which you have to contend. And you will need to have on all your armor. If you have not on the breastplate of righteousness and on the helmet of salvation, what will you do in the swellings of the Jordan when Satan is often permitted to make his fiercest attack? That's some good questions. Those of you that are just here this morning, like, man, I wish they had not invited me. This is just a beat down. It's just long. I'm a little hot. You know, it's a little hot in here. I'm hungry. I didn't get much sleep last night. I got a lot of stuff to do today. Will you consider those kind of questions? What will you do when the swellings of the Jordan come? Christy and I had the chance to pray with Marsha Potts a couple days ago on Friday. She's in her final hours right now. Death is sure for you too. It's the one thing that unites us all. Yet most of us will live our lives as if it's never coming. I'll deal with it then. No, you won't. It'd be too late. Man, I, just a, a, a note of seriousness here. I started the morning out saying, we're not a club. This isn't a game. I'm not giving a speech. You, you, we could hear speeches anywhere. This isn't a speech. This is life food. This is truth that equips us for something. 
readies us for something. Consider that first point. Faith considers the fulfillment of God's promises is more valued than all the world has to offer. Do you value God's promises more than the trappings of Egypt? Ask yourself that hard question. The second thing, faith keeps God's promises in view no matter how things are going. No matter how things are going. Joseph is the picture of assurance of things hoped for. Because these things haven't happened yet. It had been nearly 200 years since these promises were made to his grandfather. Yet here at his death, he's as sure as if it's going to happen the next day. As if it's happening that moment. Amazingly enough, his confidence in the face of stuff that hadn't even unfolded. You remember I said of those four things that God promised Abram, only one of them had come true that you're going to be a stranger in a foreign land. The second and third didn't even come close to being imaginable for him at that point. Abram's descendants will serve the Egyptians and shall be afflicted 400 years. That must have felt unlikely for Joseph, the prince of Egypt. And the next one, that the Egyptians are going to be judged, that must have seemed unlikely Things were going so well for him. Things are going so well for you here in our context. Your life is not in danger for, for your faith here in this context. Things are going just as well for you as it was for those other folks who are marrying and giving in marriage and eating and drinking and having a great time while, while Noah is over there nailing together the ark. Things are just great. Joseph could have been sitting back on flowery beds of ease saying, man, this is never going to happen. God must have changed his plans because here I sit, a prince of Egypt. Yet God will follow through on his promises. Listen to this passage. Jot it down and look at it. Habakkuk 2, 3. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. This is in the Septuagint version. He hastens to the end. He will not lie. If he seems slow, wait for him. He will surely come. He will not delay. This thing is sure, however life may be going for you. However unlikely these events may seem. I'm so thankful for our journey through Revelation years ago. It was in Revelation for the first time really working through the book of Revelation, seeing the plagues and then seeing the tribulation and seeing the similarities between the plagues and the tribulation. There's 10 plagues. There's 21 events of the tribulation. The seals, the trumpets, the bowls, one plague right after another. Some of them are just a bigger, badder version of what happened over there in the Exodus. Man, it's coming. The plagues are coming and they're going to be much worse than the plagues that Egypt experienced. However unlikely it may seem, these events are sure. They will come to pass. And some will hear these words someday from Revelation chapter 18. God proclaims and says, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. It may not be you, but it may be your kids. Think about that for a minute. 
We may live lives in safety. We may die on our deathbed, never having faced any sort of danger for our faith. Never having experienced the things that are written about here during the tribulation, the seals, the trumpets, the bowls. But your kids may experience it. However unlikely it may seem right now, it's probably as unlikely as it may have seemed for Joseph at the moment where he's the prince of Egypt, thinking about the promises that were made to his great-grandfather. I'm making these promises to you. These events will come to pass. If not in our lifetime, somebody's lifetime. And your faithfulness now may be equipping someone to be faithful then. The third thing, faith keeps God's people in view. One of the things that I've struggled with, and I mentioned this at the beginning of the morning, is how faith has sort of become individualized and that how there's even a notion of having some sort of relationship with God apart from a relationship with his people. It's unfathomable if you've read your Bible, but yet I think it's something that Satan uses. I think it's a great idea because then he can make a faith whatever he wants to make of it. Turn to John chapter 13 and you see this last passage before we close. John chapter 13. What I enjoyed about Joseph in his final moments is, like I said before, he could have met with Manasseh. He could have shared his final words with Manasseh. He could have shared his final words with Ephraim. He could have had his boys there. He could have had his grandchildren there with him. He could have had Mrs. Joseph for his final words. Egyptian lady, we don't even know her name. He could have had whoever he wanted in his final moments, but who did he call for? He called for his brothers. And it wasn't just a family issue. He called for his brothers because they were the representatives of the people of God. In calling for his brothers in the final moments, he's expressing some things to God's people. And you think about the content of what he expressed. The exodus is coming. Don't forget it. And box up my bones and carry them around and carry me home as a reminder and as an incentive that you're not home. Man, there's an otherness to his faith that I really enjoy seeing. Faith, it seems, is not ruled by self-love. Faith, it seems, has an otherness to it. God's people are in view. He has a concern for the people of God at large. He wasn't being selfish about get my bones home. Man, he's fueling a people. Don't forget where you aren't. He could have just breathed his last and shared his final thoughts with his sons or his wife. But instead, he gave instructions to his brothers and to the people of God, and he made them swear to follow through on it. Man, it just sounded familiar to me. It sounded like Jesus' final hours and final days. John chapter 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them till the end. Jesus here is facing his final hours, and here he is loving them to the end. And what unfolds in these next few minutes is he washes their feet, he feeds them, he teaches them, and he prays for them. An otherness. Man, ask yourself, if there's no otherness to your faith, is it even faith? I ask the unchurched that say they love Jesus, but they have no use for walking with the people. 
And I say, is that even faith? Faith has an otherness to it. There's a consciousness and awareness of others. As we prayed with Marsha Potts two days ago, she's in her final hours herself. We said, we'd like to pray. Or, uh, Lori woke her up and said, hey, my pastor's here. We want to pray with you. And she just kind of barely opened her eyes and stuck her hands up, like, come grab a hand. And I came over there and grabbed her hand, and we prayed with her. And after we prayed, I wanted to ask her, are you afraid? But I didn't have to because what she said next showed me that there is no guilt in life, no fear in death from life's first cry to final breath. For her, she is in, she is in relationship with her God. There was no fear in those moments. She, what she starts doing instead of me going to ask, are you afraid? She starts telling me, thank you for being a people and a church that's coming around my family in this hard time. An otherness to her faith. Man. What a treat. What a, what a treat to see that. Man, does your faith have an otherness to it? Does it terminate on you? Do these messages, does your Bible reading, does your prayer life just terminate on you? Or does it have an extension? Is there anybody on the receiving end of the equipping that you're having this morning? Faith has an otherness to it. It keeps God's people in view. Do God's promises influence how you live? Are you fueled by faith? Do you see our presence here as a sort of Egypt? You need to. Do you see God's deliverance as sure and imminent? Do you have Joseph's confidence, faith, and foresight that it's coming and that it's sure? As things warm up in this world in Egypt, as they warm up for some Christians in this world, if you're watching the news, the temperature is rising. As things warm up in Egypt and as the straw is taken away for those making bricks, do you trust that God will not fail us? Are you connecting this to that? Do you trust that through mighty acts of judgment, he too will draw his people out? Do you realize that you may be preparing your children to hear the words, come out of her, my people? Children, you may be preparing your children to hear the words, come out of her, my people. Let's pray. God, I'm thankful that we're not, this isn't a speech, and I'm thankful we're not a club because I need so much more than that. I need to hear from you. I need to know that as I hold Marsha Potts' hand, little frail, thin, sickly hand, that there's something more to this. I need to know that more that I'm doing more than just some J-O-B getting up talking about some old ancient stuff. And I'm so thankful that week by week you show us that we are part of a living story. 
with a living Lord that is seated squarely at your side, interceding for us. I'm thankful that the thing that we need, this thing that galvanizes us in the faith, is the thing that we've been dining on these last couple of years in Hebrews. I'm thankful that the Holy Spirit does that if we're attentive and listening, responsive. God, I pray that we would be no respecter of persons, but that we would love each other with truth. That's the most loving thing we can do is speak the truth and love with each other. I pray that that would guard this pulpit, that we would not be peddlers of your word, trying to modify or change the message so the back door would get smaller, but that we would be faithful and true and that your will would be done through that. I'm thankful for this example of faith in Joseph, the sure prayer, the assurance of things hoped for, the certainty of it in his life. I pray that we are as sure, though it may seem and feel as unlikely. I'm thankful for the sweet incentive of a box of bones. And I'm thankful we have so much more. We love you, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I'm going to share two thoughts on the supper. The first thought is right now. The second thought is when we've actually distributed it. First, Joseph's requests seem to be more focused on the land. The exodus is coming. It's going to be restored to your land. And, oh, bring my bones and bury them there in Shechem. Of the promises that were made, your offspring will be as numerous as the, the stars in the sand Through your offspring, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And the third, you're going to possess the land. His his requests seem more focused on the land part of it. But here's the cool thing. Though his request seems focused on the land, his movement as a person, his own story is a shadow of the other parts of the promise. Think about this for a minute. A son, a beloved son, a treasured son is beaten and abused. This beloved son eventually rises to power against all odds. And this beloved son, through his work and through his influence, results in bread for those who need it most. Living bread. And Israel's growing family is blessed through his work and his grace and his benevolence. Is any of this sounding familiar? Is that beautiful to anybody? Oh. And in the end, this son, this beloved son, lavishes forgiveness on undeserving brothers. Amen? Does anybody else love this? Oh, man, Joseph's story has been Jesus' story right in front of us. In considering Joseph this morning, we've considered the beauty of what God has done for us in a beloved son. And as we take the supper, he'll be in view. So let's distribute the elements.
1 Corinthians eleven twenty three says this. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I was thinking about what life must have been like. We joked about it earlier for the Israelites toting around Joseph's bones in a box. And whoever was in charge of that, that carrying around this box of death, or what it must have been like as you're moving across the wilderness for 40 years. You know, some kids grew up in that context. They may have been 39 years old and lived their whole life in the wilderness watching that box carried around with the tabernacle, with all the other things that God had them build and make. I thought about, man, what a reminder that must have been that box of death. In some ways, week after week, when we take the supper, we are remembering death. He says in this passage, every time we take this bread and we take this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death. Now, if there was a period right there, what a hopeless, heartbreaking reality. But there's no period. We proclaim the Lord's death. It's like carrying around a box of death with bones in it. But it says until he comes. And the reality, the, the robust reminder that we have is that he's not in a box dead. But he's seated and reigning and ruling and interceding for you and for me. And is alive and well. And he's coming back. <laughs> what incentive that must have been for them. Is it a mil- we have a million times more incentive in what we consider. We knock on that box every week. Death, death, death. Until he comes. And we take and eat and we enjoy the reality that our Lord lives. Though we remember his death, our Lord lives. And he's coming back. He promised us as much. Let's take and eat. Let's take and drink in faith.